Georgia is facing a major shift. The Census Bureau estimates that one-fifth of Georgia residents will be 65 or older by 2030. Are businesses and communities ready for the change? It's a real interesting thing that we discriminate against older people, but we're actually discriminating against our future. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, find out what it will take and what's being done to create an age-friendly state. And new strategies to address the storied past and controversial present of the state's Confederate monuments. Georgia's one of those states where you are not permitted to move or relocate. If, you, if that's off the table and, and you have concerns about the monuments, we believe that the best thing you can do is to contextualize them. Finding new approaches to shine a light on Georgia's Confederate past. And a federal judge says Georgia must chuck out its outdated voting machines before 2020. We look at what that means for elections across the state this fall after the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. A federal judge will not force Georgia to switch to paper-based voting for local elections this fall, but ruled the state must get rid of the screen voting system it's now using by 2020. U.S. District Judge Amy Totenberg issued her 153-page decision last week, the latest development in a years-long lawsuit challenging the way we vote, and it could reverberate far beyond our state. GBB political reporter Stephen Fowler. He's here to help us figure out what the ruling means for elections now and in the future. Hello. Good morning. First, let's review what is in this lawsuit and what was this particular motion trying to do? So, Virginia, this lawsuit was filed back in 2017, and it has to do with the state's voting system. And the plaintiffs in this lawsuit say that Georgia's voting system is insecure, it's out of date, it's flawed. And the latest motion for a preliminary injunction that was decided on tried to get them to stop using this machine in the fall's elections and switch to hand-marked paper ballots instead. So Judge Totenberg partially denied the motion, but partially granted it. What did she deny? So that it's that piece this fall. There's about 300 or so local city and county elections happening across the state from, you know, starting in September all the way through November. And those will not be using hand-marked paper ballots like these plaintiffs wanted to. Instead, they will be using the DREs. So as for what she did grant, Judge Totenberg mandated some changes that have to be implemented in the next year or so. For one, our current touchscreen machines have to be discontinued after election 2019. These are called direct recording electronic systems or DRE machines. What do they look like? So they're touchscreens. Uh, you cast your ballot by touching your selections. At the end, a review of your selections pops up and you hit cast vote. It stores it on a memory card, which is then popped out and, um, you know, counted that way. All right. So that's not what's going to be used in the future because Judge Totenberg said that it's a really, really out of date system and that we will be using a paper based system in 2020, regardless of what that specifically looks like. So despite that, 2019, we're going to continue as on course. Did the judge say anything different must happen this election? Well, there are a few things. Um, Georgia is moving to a new $107 million ballot marking device system that uh, they're hoping to have ready by March 24th, 2020. The judge says if that doesn't work, the backup has to be hand-marked paper ballots. There's a piece of paper with all of the races and all of the candidates that you bubble in what you want, and then it's scanned in that way. So the judge says some cities and counties have to pilot that system this fall 
to be on standby in case the new system doesn't work. And also, there were problems noted in this lawsuit and in these hearings about Georgia's election management system, which is the database that kind of populates everything, as well as the voter registration system. So every precinct that has an election this fall and in the future will have a paper copy of the poll book that you go to use to check in to say, hi, I'm Virginia Prescott. I'm in this precinct. Here's my driver's license number. There's a paper copy backup in case there's something wrong with the computers or iPads or things that they use to digitally check you in. But as for now, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger responded to the ruling last week with a press release saying he was, quote, pleased the court endorsed the policy decisions of the state's elected officials to move to a new paper ballot voting system in time for the 2020 elections while not disrupting the 2019 elections. So what is the state's position now that the judges ruled? After all, March 24th primary date is not too far away. So Secretary of State Raffensperger said that the state is moving full steam ahead with these new ballot marking devices. They have a touchscreen like our current system, but then it prints out a piece of paper with the summary of your votes, all of the races and candidates you picked, with the QR code in the top corner. And then that is scanned into a scanner at your voting precinct, and then it's stored from there. And so a few of those counties will have things this fall as a pilot system, and everyone should have it if all goes according to schedule for next March's presidential primary. Now, you talked to Marilyn Marks, one of the plaintiffs, executive director of the nonprofit coalition for good governance. Each county should choose on their own to go ahead and use their debold system and use handmarked paper ballots, not the DREs just as we have been promoting for the last year and a half. So what does she say the counties can and should use paper this fall anyway? So there's a part of the state election code that says, you know, local elections officials, if they have concerns about the system or whatever, that they can use or choose to use handmarked paper ballot systems. There are things in place. We use paper ballots, handmarked paper ballots. Those are called absentee ballots and provisional ballots. And so Marilyn Marks and uh, some of the other people in this lawsuit say the counties have the capabilities. The judge said these are old and out of date and not secure, so the counties should just use paper anyways. The interesting thing is local elections aren't guided by the same like statewide rules. So if you have, you know, you know the tiny city in Georgia has its own election. So a lot of those already conduct them on handmarked paper ballots. Some of them even use the old lever machines, mm-hmm. the big refrigerator-sized machines. So Marilyn Mark says, why not everyone use paper? So several voting rights groups have also issued statements calling this decision a victory over election for election integrity across the country. And these groups say the decision could influence cases and efforts in other states. What is going on here? So right now, at this very moment, Georgia is one of five states that does not have a paper-based backup for how it votes or a paper-based system that has your ballot. So the argument here is here you have a federal judge saying touchscreen direct recording electronic voting machines are not safe and not secure and infringe upon people's constitutional right to vote. So the language in her ruling, and it's 153 pages, I mean, the the chapter headings in her rulings read like a greatest hits of everything wrong with these voting machines. Uh, She even quotes Yogi Berra saying that, you know, it's going to be like deja vu all over again if the state doesn't get its act together. 
the argument in this case is that this judge's ruling on this particular issue, while not moving to paper ballots this fall, could lay the groundwork for other states and other people to challenge these touchscreen electronic-only machines. Over the weekend, you reported on a new amended complaint that has been filed in the case, this time dealing with the new $107 million system the state is rolling out in the next couple of months. One of the plaintiffs alleges that the ballot marking devices are just as unconstitutional as the DREs. So can you walk us quickly through the new system and why they're being challenged? So the new system does have technology in it. There's a touchscreen that you cast your vote on, then it prints out a summary. Uh, The computer part of it, the, the, the touchscreen part of it, the plaintiffs say that it's still just as susceptible to hacking and as insecure as the other machines. And then it prints out that piece of paper with your summary. And the summary is just the words of who you voted for and what the races are, which is then scanned in a QR code. Their argument, I can't read a QR code, you can't read a QR code. They say that it violates the voter's ability to like check their ballots and see who they uh, voted for. And so this will be the next leg of uh, challenges to how we vote, and we'll see what Judge Totenberg has to say about that. So even if both sides are declaring victory on some level, this is going to continue. Finally, this week, former gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams made her own voting announcement. Heading into the 2020 election cycle, we cannot be successful as Democrats if we allow our democracy to lie in disrepair. We must proactively protect every vote, starting right now. So I'm excited to announce the launch of Fair Fight 2020. Well, that was actually last week. I stand corrected. What is Fair Fight 2020 and how does this play into ongoing questions about election integrity? Well, so quickly, Fair Fight 2020 is Stacey Abrams not running for office and using what she learned about voter suppression and trying to protect the vote and working with Democratic parties in other states that have other issues to craft solutions to make sure that everyone has the right to vote and everyone has that same access that she says was not present in her election in Georgia last year. GBB political reporter Stephen Fowler. Just a note today, a nice nod for a friend of the show. Acapella Books Day has been declared by the Atlanta City Council, honoring the independent bookstore on its 30th anniversary. You can hear owner Frank Reese on our summer book show. Yay for indie bookstores. And we now turn to the ongoing opioid crisis in Georgia. We've covered this issue several different ways on OST, how it affects pregnant women, what makes the street drug fentanyl a deadly game changer, and how Georgia cities and counties are banding together to sue drug makers. Today, we're bringing you a fresh idea for dealing with the addiction. GPB's Ellen Eldridge takes us to the Metro Atlanta Police District of Marietta. Police across Georgia are admitting they need to try something new to battle the opioid crisis. To fight addiction, drug users need resources. Back in 2012, Rob Patrika called 911 to help a fellow heroin user. The first time I ever went to jail was because that girl overdosed in my car. It was also the first time I'd ever experienced an overdose. And, like, I remember just being completely traumatized and, like, terrified during that moment. The woman survived, but she and Patrika both landed in jail. Chuck McPhillamy of the Marietta Police Department says because at that time, cops treated overdoses as crimes. That was the job. If you had drugs or drug paraphernalia on you, you were going to jail. 
There was no more thought put into it. It wasn't that we were trying to be cold-hearted, but our job was to protect and serve and enforce the laws of the land. The law demanded arrests, but that started to change in 2014 when then-Governor Nathan Deal signed a Medical Amnesty Act into law. That was aimed at saving the lives of opioid users. Now, in that Medical Amnesty Act, we're not looking to make any arrest. We're just trying to get that person help. Like the kind of help Rob Patrika eventually found. Patrika is in recovery now. He spends his weekends working as a landscaper with his business partner, Aaron Vilchez. In the past, they used drugs together. There is some poison ivy down there, so but I left it yeah, down there. The men started their own business this summer and already have a handful of clients, some who've paid through the year. But Rob and Aaron still work together for someone else during the week. It's tough to build a business, but hard work beats being dead or in prison. To get other opioid users where Patrika is today, Marietta officials realized they had to quit running in circles. For a 24-hour period, we could see, sometimes we'll see as many as three or four overdoses. That's Chris Whitmire with the Marietta Fire Department. In 2018, officials saved overdose victims in the city 100 times by dosing them with the life-saving Narcan that they carry at all times. McPhillamy says the police chief realized these same victims were likely to need reviving again and again. Well, if it's predictable, it's preventable. So Chief Dan Flynn decided to get into the business of prevention, something no other Georgia police department has done. Now, nine officers are responsible for following up with drug users within 24 hours of their overdose. When the assist team visits, the goal is to help people recover. The assist team has followed up on at least four overdose calls since the program started in May. One woman revived after an overdose is now seeking treatment. McPhillamy says at least this is a start. The program is still in its infancy. We're expecting to have doors slammed in our face. We're expecting to have some people saying, no, get out, I don't want to talk to you. But the goal of this program is if we can save even one life, then was it worth it? That's why McPhillamy says the Marietta Police Department will continue to try to get drug users into recovery. For GPB News, I'm Ellen Eldridge in Marietta. You can find more coverage of Georgia's opioid epidemic at gpbnews.org. We'd like to know what you think of the legal battle over Georgia's voting process or how the state has been handling the opioid crisis. You can join the conversation on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought, or on Twitter at OST Talk, or you can follow us on Instagram at GPB News. Stay with us. Coming up, we've got a summit on aging is taking place in Atlanta today where we'll have a conversation about what you might consider if you want to stay in your home as you age and your needs change. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that and more of On Second Thought. We'll be back right after a short break. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The state of Georgia is getting older fast. The Census Bureau estimates that by 2030, one-fifth of Georgia residents will be 65 or older. By 2050, the number of Georgians older than 85 will triple from the number in 2010. Some businesses and organizations are anticipating the needs of the state's aging population by developing, quote, 
age-friendly communities, unquote. Today, the Atlanta Regional Commission holds a forum on that very topic. Here to tell us more is Metro Atlanta's Agency on Aging Director, Becky Kurtz. Hello. Hi, good to be with you. Also with us, Will Johnston. He's Executive Director of the Microlife Institute and a speaker at today's ARC event. Hello. Hi. Glad you're here. Catching up with both of you before the summit, which is called Lifelong Communities, Making the Atlanta Region Age-Friendly. And age-friendly, that's not just a marketing term. This is actually an official World Health Organization designation. What does it mean? That's right. It means a community where people of all ages and abilities can thrive. And how do we make those kinds of communities, I guess, is the big question. Absolutely. And and you can think at the big picture level, but I actually think it helps to start thinking at the individual level. Is the house that I live in right now going to allow me to get older in it or not? And are, what, what are some of the factors you consider? Right. So, for example... If I had the um, I had limited mobility and have problems with my knees or my hips, am I going to have steps that are between me and the bathroom? Am I going to be able to get out and participate in my community or are steps in my way? Can I access transportation easily? What if I've outlived my ability to drive? Most of us will outlive our ability to drive by seven to ten years. What are we going to do with that decade of time where we can't drive our own vehicle? What does the community do to help me be able to stay there and continue to participate in my community? These are some big questions. Absolutely. And the communities around the world are at different stages of adopting age-friendly policies. So by comparison, where are we? How far along is Georgia? Well, it depends where you are in Georgia. But none of us have really gotten there. I think it's a process. It's a journey. All of us need to be on that journey. But there are several communities in Georgia, including the city of Atlanta, city of Tucker, Macon, Augusta, there are a number of communities that have officially said, we're on this journey, we're developing a plan, we're going to be age-friendly. So we're making progress. So one of the things that uh, Becky mentioned was housing. And Will, your organization, this is the Microlife Institute, one piece of the affordable housing puzzle that can be important for seniors on fixed income. So tell us about what you do and how it benefits older adults. In a nutshell, I would think that uh, to say that the Microlife Institute helps people explore the progressive zoning that is needed to allow for more types of housing to be built. For example, accessory dwelling units, backyard cottages. So allowing for seniors to remain in their community. Maybe they can't stay in the home that they are currently in, but when they look for another home that's probably better for them to live in, it's not in their neighborhood because nothing is being built in a space utilized matter to allow them to be independent and autonomous and still be a part of this community. So how does zoning come into it? Is it there, there a question of whether or not you are zoned to put like a backyard cabin or as you've worked with before, tiny houses on your property? Exactly. So we at the Microlife Institute are really trying to educate and advocate for progressive zoning to allow for more innovative housing options to be utilized. To drive community, you need diversity. You don't just need all a bunch of one demographics in one area. You need the youngins. You need the old ones. You need everyone to be able to be to, to want to pitch in and be a part of the community to drive, you know, each other and help each other. 
And are there places where you've done that in Georgia, doing these kind of experimental units of housing? So, excitingly enough, we are in process of our first project in Clarkston, Georgia. It's called the Cottages on Vaughn, and they are eight homes, all under 500 square feet, really no steps to the houses. And there are a couple steps up to the front porch, but all the homes are single-level family homes. So how about affordability here? One of the statistics that we know, a rather frightening one by some estimates, about half of Americans over the age of 55 has no retirement savings. So when they can no longer work, how dire is this housing situation going to become? It is, it is very dire um, because housing is just getting more expensive. And unfortunately, we keep seeming to build larger homes like the McMansions that uh, pop up all over. Now, don't get me wrong. It's kind of funny. We actually don't have a housing crisis in the United States. We just need to learn to live together, a la Golden Girls. You know, so <laughs> I, I knew I was going to bring it up. You're onto my plan. <laughs> and so the idea, we do need to be innovative, but with innovation, comes policy. We need to allow a different definition of what a family can be and exist in a single family home. So Becky, you mentioned some of the reasons or some of the features that would make a community more aging in place friendly or age friendly. According to the AARP, 88% of older adults would like to live in their current home as long as possible. So there's resistance to moving into assisted living or a nursing home, for, for that matter. So what are the benefits to actually staying and aging in place? Well, I think the uh, example that Will gave a minute ago about being ripped out of your community because you need a different kind of housing option, but there's nothing where you've lived, is a really important one because you've not only moved out of your home, but you've ripped apart all those relationships you've built. You've ripped apart maybe your faith community, your neighbors that you've known for years. All those important community supports you have in place are gone if you leave. And so if you leave those relationships, you're more likely to become socially isolated. And social isolation leads to all kinds of health problems. So People have a good instinct. They want to stay in place because, not just because they're being stubborn, but because they've built a community. And staying in that community and keeping those relationships are really critical. So lots of reasons to stay where you are. The question is, can you get the services you need that will help you stay where you are? And will your house or your transportation options be impediments to that? Getting all of those pieces in place can actually make it quite successful for people to age in place. Well, Becky, you mentioned loneliness and some of the effects of loneliness. What are some of the ways that people who are living in environments that are separate from each other, not particularly connected to the community, how are they finding ways to stay connected? First, let me say a thing about how dangerous social isolation can be. There have been some recent studies that show that social isolation and loneliness is as bad for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So when you think about the health impact of that, that's really frightening. So what are the things we can do to combat that? Staying engaged civically is so important. That could mean volunteering. It could mean staying in the workforce, even if that means part-time work. Something that gives you a purpose is so critical. And staying engaged in community groups, whether it's a faith community or arts organization or something, senior centers have lots of programming available. What's a way that you can stay connected? Again, this gets us back to do our communities provide transportation options to allow you to stay connected? It gets back to that built environment question. But 
what are the ways you can purposefully continue to stay engaged in your community? It's so important for well-being and health. Two and a half million people aged 65 or older are expected to live in Georgia by the year 2040, and the majority do say that they want to stay in their community. So what does that mean? Well, that's a subject of an Atlanta Regional Commission forum happening today. My guest, Will Johnston, Executive Director of the Microlife Institute, will be among the speakers. Also with us is Becky Kurtz. She's Director for the Atlanta Regional Commission's Metro Atlanta Agency on Aging. So let's talk about driving. Transportation, a huge challenge, not just true in rural parts of the state that don't have buses or trains. 90% of older adults in Atlanta don't have access to transit. So how is that going to impact the quality of life? And how do you move that needle? Because there are so many pressures on creating more public transportation, and that just has not worked. It's working. It just takes time. Yeah. It, we're, That's an optimistic answer. Well, we are making progress, but it's it takes a long time. And just like the housing conversation, the transportation conversation also needs to be about options. So transit's going to be an option for some people, but ride sharing is a good option for some people. Volunteer drivers is a good option for some people. There are opportunities out there to think more creatively about transportation options, not only single-family cars and not only uh, mass transit, but certainly mass transit's a huge piece of the puzzle. So what other kind of services are available for people who are in that situation? They need to get to doctor's appointments. They need to get to the grocery store. One of the things we provide at the Atlanta Regional Commission is a group of trained counselors who help individuals get information about a wide array of services. We call it Empowerline. And you can talk one-on-one with the counselor and say, I have an issue. I need help. Help me figure out my options where I live. And transportation is one of the most frequent ones we get. How can I get to my doctor if I can't drive? What are my choices? And going through all of those options with an individual where they live is something we do every single day. So if if we're talking about a huge, you know, people call it the silver tsunami, such a huge population that is going to be aging in the next couple of years, where are you and your services and other nonprofit organizations or other city services in their capacity to deliver for this kind of a population? Well, first, let me say that we don't use the term silver tsunami. And the reason is because a lot of the older people in our community now and in the future are going to be actually contributing more than they take. So a lot of people are working longer. A lot of people are engaging and becoming very active volunteers. A lot of people are contributing to the community. However, At some point, sometimes people do need additional services, and there are always challenges with meeting that need. Yes, we do have waiting lists for publicly funded services. Yes, we do have more people calling us for services than we're able to answer the phone right away. The demand is there and it is growing. So it's a constant trying to keep up with the with the challenge of that growth. How about getting this information out? You said that this is something that you have available and you have counselors helping people get that information. This is, however, a demographic that has spent the majority of their lives without the Internet, right? But when most of us want to know something, we Google it. Is, is that an effective way to connect with seniors? Yes and no. So, yes, it is for those good people percentage of of older adults who actually are web savvy and for their family caregivers. A lot of adult children will find the information or even grandchildren and then say, hey, here's an opportunity for you to go and learn more. 
all of our services that are available by telephone. So we're not limited to what's on the Internet by any means. Mm-hmm. So and, and this all speaks to also independence. You know, you're talking about communities, but the idea of people having a sense of autonomy over their own lives. And how does that figure into all of these calculations about, you know, because, as we know, dementia, also a growing issue for aging adults, local police and service employees trained to recognize some signs of dementia and provide support. But does Georgia have communities like this? Is there training like that? And are they available? I'll take the dementia piece specifically. Georgia is working very hard on becoming a dementia-friendly state. And that means that we've done a lot of work on training. You mentioned law enforcement officers, um, shopkeepers, restaurant um, workers on how do you recognize that someone might have dementia and respond appropriately if they're confused or having some kind of behavior you don't understand. So we are definitely moving in that direction. The Georgia Division of Aging Services is a state agency that's leading that effort statewide. And we at the Atlanta Regional Commission are very involved in that conversation. I think the conversation is a big thing that both of you are getting to. You know, you are having this conversation on a municipal level. This is something that's going on in places, cities, towns all across the country and as we're hearing all across the world. So how would you encourage somebody who is listening to this to think think more about, like, if, it, if it's not an immediate need for you, the need to have mm. a more age-diverse community around us? We're so good at this in our country. As, as we're, ac- we're reactionary instead of preventative. But why not take the time to think through sustainable, thoughtful mm-hmm. decisions that are, are a healthy impact for so many groups of people in our in our country, and yet we we still react. Um, and so, how can we think through? I mean, just what we were talking about loneliness. You know, how can we design and encourage our developers to build for that? Instead of just building, we don't realize how much architecture affects our life every day. And it it's also back to psychology. It's mental. I mean, interacting with a building could make you happy. It also could terrify you and make you very lonely and sad. So how can we bring these human concepts into future ways we design for uh, the future Atlanta, for different cities? It's so crucial that we take into account of how we design future buildings to address just it's a simple concern of being lonely. We know, you know, if you're talking to advertisers, the demographic that they're going for is young. You mentioned earlier, Becky, that people who are older are giving back to society. They're still earning money. This is this is a way that I think we've kind of written people off in the past. How do we reel that back in? Actually, it's a real interesting thing that we discriminate against older people, but we're actually discriminating against our future. Good point. Because we're all aging. And so anything we do that supports myths about aging or is denigrating older people just because of their age is something we're going to be living in the future. So it's a really important thing to think about uh, ourselves individually as well as how we're talking about it. It's a society, I believe. But in answer to your question about preparing for that future, I think if we aren't in denial that we're getting older then we can start planning for what are the possibilities. How do I want, I want to stay in this neighborhood when I grow older. How can I make sure that happens? How can I get engaged with the community conversations to make sure options are here for transportation, for housing? How can I make sure that I know 
who to reach out to when I need services in my home to be able to stay there. That's a conversation that families are starting to have more and more, and really, that's the conversation this forum is all about. Becky Kurtz, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Becky Kurtz is director of Metro Atlanta's Agency on Aging. And Will Johnson, thank you so much. Glad to be here. Will is executive director of the Microlife Institute. They are today going to both be part of the forum Lifelong Communities, making the Atlanta region age-friendly. We always love to hear from you. We're on Facebook and we're on Twitter at OST Talk, or you can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org. I'm Virginia Prescott. This is On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. What role do video games play in mass shootings? The data on violent video games promoting real violence conflicts with the political talking points. Join us tomorrow as we break down the numbers and look at how video games have become a partisan issue. Two years ago, far-right groups gathered in Charlottesville, Virginia, to oppose the city council's decision to remove a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee from a public park. The nationalist community came to Charlottesville to defend our heritage. These protests culminated in a Unite the Right rally where members of the alt-right, white supremacist, and neo-Nazi groups clashed with counter-protesters, one of which was killed. More than 49 people were injured. 30 cities across the country removed Confederate monuments after that. Georgia is among seven southern states that forbid taking down those monuments. Well, the city of Atlanta is taking another approach. It is adding context about the realities of slavery, the Civil War, and the brutality that followed on monuments. We're going to talk about this with Karen Cox, who joins me on the line from the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, where she is a history professor and author. Karen, welcome. Thank you. And Fritz Bundage is with us. He's history professor at UNC at Chapel Hill, joining us from WNC. Hello, Fitzhugh. Uh, Good to talk to you. Here in our Atlanta studio, Sheffield Hale, president and CEO of Atlanta History Center, which is helping fund the installation of additional text to four Atlanta markers. Great to have you with us. Great to be here. All right, Fitz, I'm going to start with you. The vast majority of Confederate graves were in private cemeteries until the Jim Crow era and extending into the early civil rights years. So what was behind the move to install in public squares at the time? I think it was a part of a long-term effort to refurbish the reputation of the Confederacy and the the so-called lost cause, the lost cause of the Confederacy. Given that the Confederacy had been thrashed, I mean completely defeated, and that the armies of the Confederacy had been soundly defeated in virtually every front of the Civil War, and the government had collapsed in, shall we say, a kind of humiliating fashion, there was a long-term effort by the, gen- the Civil War generation and the generation following to try to rebuild the image of the Confederacy as a noble effort. And even though everything had been lost, all of the causes for which the war had been waged had been defeated, uh, there was an effort to somehow make it a noble cause. So the monuments that were put up starting in the 1890s, well, 1880s and 1890s and continuing for a generation or more, were an effort to 
move the issue from honoring the Confederate dead to honoring the Confederate cause. All right. So, Karen, your book, Dixie's Daughters, is about the United Daughters of the Confederacy. What was their role in funding these monuments and memorializing the lost cause? Well, the the um, the UDC, which was founded in 1894, um, is the group primarily responsible for the vast majority of monuments um, that we see on landscapes across the South. Um, they were consummate fundraisers, but they also were um, married or related to men of influence in the region, and so it wouldn't have been difficult for them to to fundraise by getting local funds or state funds uh, in order to build a, a monument. But their particular uh, cause, in my estimation, was um, was about vindicating the Confederate generation. And to vindicate meant that uh, it was necessary that people honor uh, the Confederate cause um, along the lines of what Dr. Brundage said. Sheffield, the Atlanta History Center has created a guide to interpreting monuments and is going to spend $11,000 to add more information to some of these markers in Atlanta. So given what we've just heard from Fitz and Karen, what to your mind is missing and what are these markers going to add? Well, what's missing is what the people at the time did and why they did it, and then what's on the marker and then what's left off of the marker. Um, particularly, for example, in Piedmont Park, um, it's a peace monument. How can a peace monument be problematic? Why was it attacked after Charlottesville? Well, these markers tell the story of the fact that the African-American narrative was left out of that, that there was reconciliation without the African-Americans present in a period of dramatic growth in Jim Crow laws, in this case sandwiched between the 1908 race riots, the erection of the marker in 1911, and 1915, the, um, the reintroduction of the Ku Klux Klan. And are these plaques that are going to be added to the No, monuments? these are his exhibition panels. Mm-hmm. I'm an anti-placker. <laughs> okay. I, I think plaques uh, end up disappearing into the monument. And, and what our goal is to turn these into outdoor exhibits. Well, Karen, supporters of Confederate statues argue that the memorials are symbols of honoring heritage, not about hate. So is what is at issue here differing interpretations of history? Well, those who, who say, you know, it, I wouldn't say they would say it was not about hate, but they definitely talk about honoring their heritage. And I think what um, if you read the language of the the United Daughters of the Confederacy, including someone like Mildred Rutherford from Georgia, um, you recognize very swiftly that uh, their ideology, of that of white supremacy, was in keeping with the ideology of, of the kind of legislation that was being passed during that time. So in some ways, people try to extricate you know, the monument from the ideology, and um, I think you have to understand the ideology to understand that that is part of the context. Well, Karen, you don't think installing contextual markers is the right approach. Have I got that right? Well, here's what I feel about that. I think I I say I I believe that ship has sailed, and the reason I believe that is is because there was a time when people wanted to add context, and no one wanted to listen to that. Um, but I think that what's what's happened is with the passage of um, legislation that prevents the removal. Um, is is in my mind preventing the discussion, and and it, I think also that this issue has been allowed to f- 
in the wounds of this issue have been allowed to fester, uh, and particularly in the aftermath of Charlottesville, that we are now at a place where adding context and adding these exhibit panels doesn't um, satisfy people on either side of this issue. Fitz, I'm curious to hear your opinion. Where are you on this idea? I think Karen was very articulate on that point, and I would just add that I think the real issue is now in the seven states that you mentioned that have the laws. The challenge is to change those laws so that communities have the capacity to do what they think is appropriate. Having said that, I certainly salute anyone, given that the law exists, and as long as there are efforts to try to remove the law in North Carolina as a stopgap measure, I think the exercise of coming up with exhibition panels will focus some people's attention on the issue in a way with a kind of clarity that may produce some useful dialogues. But broadly speaking, I agree with Karen. It is a temporary solution to a long-term problem. Well, uh, and recently protesters knocked down a Confederate statue there in North Carolina where you are. Uh, Is that the sort of extreme, you know, placing context, keeping something up, having discussions about it versus just knocking it down? Well, I think... Since you referenced the incidents here in in North Carolina, that was certainly an example of a long, long campaign, a campaign that began well before Charlottesville, that was thwarted year after year after year. And so I think there was a kind of pent-up frustration with the inability to get any change. Uh, And in fact, more than a decade ago, there were calls for plaques to be put up for contextualization. And as Karen said, those plaques were never put up. And so the debate moved beyond them. We're talking about an initiative to add context to Confederate monuments in Atlanta, a model replicated in many places. Fitz Brundage and Karen Cox are both historians and contributors to Confederate Statues and Memorialization. It's a book of a discussion, series of discussions and essays published by the University of Georgia Press. Sheffield Hale is CEO and president from the Atlanta History Museum, which is Atlanta History Center, rather, helping to fund the installation. Now, Sheffield, there are nearly 200 monuments in Georgia, in including the largest in the world at Stone Mountain Park. What led Georgia to bar removal of those monuments in 2001? What kind of stipulations are there? Well, well, that was the uh, time when the Governor Barnes proposed the change of the flag. And these laws, this law was put in place as, as one of the compromises that went along with that. The other, one of the other things, that they reinstalled the, a portrait of General Robert E. Lee in the state capitol. Um, with a ceremony. So there were a lot of things that went along to try to get that passed, and this was part of it. And then this year it was enhanced, um, belts and suspenders, to make it really hard um, to move a monument. And they they actually broadened it to make it look like it was not about Confederate monuments, to include all monuments. So this is, uh, it, it adding co- if this is to privately owned, I think that is the stipulation here. Are these privately owned lands and monuments? I know in Memphis. Yeah, these are all, these are all, Federal. I mean, or excuse me, state and city loan. Those are the only ones they can control. I see. I know in Memphis, the group got together to a nonprofit to buy a park so that they could remove a monument. Let's see what else is going on in other cities. The city of New Orleans removed all of its memorials dedicated to the Confederacy in 2017. Here is Mayor Mitch Landrieu explaining why. To literally put 
the Confederacy on a pedestal in our most prominent places in honor is an inaccurate recitation of our full past, is an affront to our present, and it is a bad prescription for our future. New Orleans paid about $2 million to remove four Confederate statues. Uh, those statues, when they come down, sometimes people advocate for putting them in museums. Sometimes they're sitting in storage. Also, let's hear from President Trump, who asked how far you go in removing monuments. This was after the Charlottesville rally. This week, it's Robert E. Lee. I noticed that Stonewall Jackson's coming down. I wonder, is it George Washington next week? And is it Thomas Jefferson the week after? You know, you, all, you really do have to ask yourself, where does it stop? Karen, does he have a point? I mean, early presidents did own slaves. Should we add context to their memorials or monuments or pictures? I, yeah. <laughs> well, unfortunately, our president is not a historian, and I don't think um, that I'd put much stock in this, this idea of a slippery slope. Uh, we are not um, removing monuments en masse. It's happened in a few places. Um, um, but, um, you know, I, I think these are two different, uh, subjects that we're you know, trying to discuss here, like in particularly about, um, uh, founding fathers. I'd, I'd actually prefer to, uh, you know, allow experts on, on the founding fathers to discuss that. As, what is the role of historians in civic debate about removal and contextualization? I mean, all of you are um, have roots and foundation and grounding in academic histor- history, but also your citizens, your observers of what is going on in our culture. Who wants to pick that up, Fitz? Sure. Uh, well, I I think we do have an important role, and to a degree, I think we've been trying to play that. Karen, for example, has written op-ed pieces and uh, shared her knowledge with as large an audience as possible. And I think that's exactly right. We should contribute to informing people so that they understand, for example, prior to the Charlottesville event uh, and actually prior to Charleston and Dylan Roof's massacre there in 2015, there were certain preconceptions about monuments, for that matter, about the Confederate flag, that I think have been substantially revised through the help of historians. So that now we know, as you pointed out, that many of these monuments were put up many decades after the Civil War, and they were put up not to honor Confederate dead necessarily, but to honor the Confederacy and the cause itself. So I think we've been contributing as best we could uh, but it's it's also moved in ways now where it's it's part of a much larger national debate that is about politics, about ideology, about who it is who is able to talk about American heritage. So, for example, when you heard the alt-right speaker in Charlottesville talk about this is our heritage, well, the Union victory is our heritage, too. So there is nothing unique or privilege, shall we say, about the Confederate memory. And we historians have to try to inform people about how that Confederate memory came to occupy the privileged place it currently has. Well, yeah, at the Atlanta History Center, we've taken the position that if we give people facts and tools where they can deal with their Confederate monuments on a local level, that perhaps is a way around this national dialogue. These are inherently local artifacts. And if you can get a somebody, call them a troublemaker, call them a catalyst, 
information and tools which they can use in their own local community and have something be bottom-up as opposed to top-down, that in this democratic society seems to work best. Mm. My family is from South Georgia and South Alabama, and I can tell you they don't want anybody from Atlanta telling them what to do. But what they will do and what people will do is find things on the Internet and find this incredible um, history and resources that we try to put together that that um, fits you and others have 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 done and they can find it. They can have the tools and then they can decide what they want to do locally. We live in a democratic society, so let's give people the tools and the information to act on it. Well, Sheffield, in the, on the Atlanta History Center's website, it says the status quo is not an option. So that is, is, sounds like a more, I guess, strident, you know, this has got to change kind of position. Right. But we don't say you must take it out or you must contextualize it. It's your choice. That what, our, our, what we're saying is don't leave it uncontested. Don't wait. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And in this case, we're saying, go ahead and, and do something. And Atlanta has done something. The other cities have been frozen. And, we've, and, and we'll see where it goes. And this is not the end. This is the beginning. Well, these, these panels that we put up, these, uh, this exhibition, this is phase one of a discussion. It's not permanent. A marker or a plaque is permanent discussion over. This is an exhibit. This invites inquiry and discussion. All right, we've got to wrap. May I speak on, yes, on please. This as well? um, we've got to wrap in just a minute, though, Karen. But I'd love to hear from you. Right now, I, I've been um, traveling around the country in the last couple of years, particularly in the South. And part of the reason that that things are frozen, as Mr. Hale says, is because that uh, is because not all the stakeholders in the community are allowed to speak on this issue. Very often, it's it's a group of white people and white men who are making decisions about what happens to monuments in a community, and and so uh, all the stakeholders have to be have a seat at the table, and that's not going on everywhere. It might go on, uh, it may be going on in Atlanta or maybe in New Orleans, but it's not going on in the vast majority of towns Karen across Cox. the South, which is why we've got to educate them. Thank you. I've got to wrap you up there, but thank you so much to Karen Cox, Fitz Brundage, and to Sheffield Tail. They are all here to talk about the new move to contextualize some Confederate memorials. Thank you all for speaking with me.